You're listening to an all-new episode of Self-Made Strategies. Visit selfmadestrategies.com for new episodes, information about our guests, and a whole lot more. Welcome to another episode of the Self-Made Strategies podcast. On episode 118, we are sitting down with Rip Tilden. Rip Tilden's been helping companies grow throughout his 30-plus year career. He has experience in more than 10 industries in public and private companies, in wireless communications, automotive, distribution, defense and aerospace, manufacturing, retail, and fitness and wellness. Rip has a strong reputation as a team builder with a proven ability to lead change. Rip helps organizations grow and deliver strong results in intensely competitive industries. His experience includes international work in Europe and Asia. He's known for integrity, outstanding communication skills, and a consistent record of successfully executing strategic visions to grow and enterprise's value. Rip's passion is helping entrepreneurs build their businesses. He's particularly good at building and leading teams, and Rip understands what makes a business work and enjoys teaching and coaching leadership teams to strengthen their businesses and gain traction every day. Rip co-wrote a book called Leading on Purpose, Sage Advice and Practical Tools for Becoming the Complete Leader. Rip is with us today to share growth strategies, advice, and best practices for the leaders out there listening to this episode. And some of the things we're going to cover on this episode are how great leaders are made, not born, why you need to understand leadership styles, why you should start with leadership strategy, best practices for improving your communication skills with your team, how you can inspire engagement through motivation, and the best way to guide behavior through feedback. Here are the self-made strategies of Rip Tilden. Lots to talk about. I mean, Leading on Purpose is an awesome book. I haven't gotten the whole way through it, but I am enjoying it. And uh, basically, I-, I took the the approach of looking at how you structured your table of contents because the high level topics are really meaningful, I think, to leadership change at large. And we'll kind of just go through those together and talk a little bit about that. Um, And in all honesty, in a little bit of self-interest here, I'm super excited, first of all, to get to record this podcast with you. Finally, we talked about recording this about maybe close to two years ago, right? A year and a half Mm -hmm. or so when I saw you speak. Yeah, I think so. And uh, it's it's nice to finally get you on on a Zoom call to be able to to talk to you about this. And myself and a few colleagues are actually starting a new organization. And this is some of the stuff that we're talking about. So there's a little bit of self-interest in this episode. Um, But great. One of the main things that stood out to me is right from the beginning, you talk about how great leaders are made, not born and how extraordinary results are really within anyone's reach. And I love that because, one, it takes us away from that old school mentality of you either have the smarts and the skills or you don't. And realistically, leadership, as you point out in the book you co-authored, leadership is really an art. And it's something that you can develop and sort of put your reps in to get better at. But often, people get thrust into a leadership role, especially in bigger organizations, And maybe they've never led a team before. They've been more on the technical skill side or the organizational skill side, but not on that, you know, focus on emotional intelligence and those skills. So how did you come up with all of this? Well, first of all, an awful lot of what's in the book is based upon my experience and the experience of my co-author and business partner, Tim Thomas, uh, in our own working lives, in uh, fulfilling leadership roles during the course of our careers, and all, and additionally, all of the interaction we've had with other companies and nonprofit organizations as we've worked with them to help them build their leadership skills. So it's a reflection of a, an awful lot of experience of, of our, on our own, but also an awful lot of experience uh, with the people that we work with every day. Um, and I do agree with your point. Um, you can learn to lead on purpose, hence the title of the book. Uh, Sadly, most of us learn to lead by virtue of the random accident that is the set of people we encounter that we don't have any control over when we go to work in an organization. We have some control over the boss we select because we, we either accept or don't accept a job offer. And we get to know that boss and maybe a few other people during the interview process a little bit, but not intimately. 
And all of the other people we interact with in an organization, we don't meet ahead of time. And so our encounters with them are, in that sense, random. And unfortunately, many people have as their sole leadership classroom the random interactions they have with the people they work with every day. And candidly, those may be very uneven encounters. You may get lucky and encounter some people who are terrific leaders. And then you, as you rise and gain leadership responsibility, you can emulate things you admire that they did. But I'm, but sadly, the list usually is longer of the individuals who we encounter who aren't very good leaders. And we may make a checklist of things we don't want to do that they did when we become leaders, but it still leaves us with a pretty thin list of positive leadership tools or skills. So our whole point is, the whole premise of the book is, you can build your leadership skills systematically, just like you build your physical conditioning or any other knowledge set. And ultimately, it's worth working on every single day, because if you do that, you're going to become better and better over time and a more effective leader. And, and you, can, you can really truly make up your mind that you want to grow as a leader, and you're going to work on a set of skills consistently. And when you do that, not only will you get better, you're going to influence a whole bunch of people around you who will see that and emulate that. Right. That's a great point. And, and that goes to the old adage, you quit managers, not jobs usually, right? Yes, it's really true. Yeah. yeah, it's a shame because even looking at my own career, a lot of times, and especially in the legal industry, which is kind of fraught with bad leadership, often because it's an attorney that really doesn't have any sort of uh, team management skills as part of their academic you know, progress to that role. And then they're thrust into this role as partner, maybe because they've been successful as an associate or they've built a solid book of business or both. And they end up then having to lead other associates. And it's often a very negative experience, especially in that world. Um, but yeah, so the book goes through understanding leadership styles, why you should start with leadership strategy, best practices mm -hmm. for improving communication skills, uh, inspiring motivation through engagement or inspiring engagement through motivation, a little bit of uh, six of one, half dozen of the other, guiding sure. behavior through feedback, and then arguing well through conflict resolution. And then finally, getting high quality execution out of your team. So and and of course, the book throughout the entire process, and you do have a particular section on this, but I think the whole book, the overarching umbrella is this concept of change management, right? Because it's all about a leader who gets thrust into a leadership role. And you you tell the anecdotal story of Frank uh, Abernathy, right? Is the character that you have in the, in the yes. sort of anecdotal stories, which I love, by the way, because that presents a nice sort of character to attach the examples to. But let's take these one by one. So why are leadership styles important? And there's a quote in the book for from Jim Kuzis and Barry Posner, where yes. they define leadership as the art of mobilizing others to want to struggle for shared aspirations, which I love because that's the idea, right? We're going to war together, essentially. We're going to try to do this big and audacious thing, maybe a new startup, some new technology, that quote makes me think of people like Elon Musk or Mark Cuban or, you know, those mm -hmm. uh, Tim Cook or or um, Steve Jobs, all of those sort of audacious leaders who inspire big movements. So looking specifically at personal power versus positional power, which is sort of where you start that discussion off. Yes. Why is understanding leadership styles to begin with an important part of the process? Because for us to be really effective leaders, and the simplest summary of the Kuzis and Posner definition, they're wonderful, wonderful teachers on leadership. The simplest summary of, of that definition of leadership is influence behavior. Ultimately, we as leaders, we influence the behavior of others. And that's not intended to have a diabolical cast to it. We're looking to influence folks to help them prosper and to help organizations prosper. For us to do that well, one of the things we've learned is that we need to meet people where they are. We need to sort out what's on the mind of the people that we're working with, what their needs are, what their concerns are, and what their skill sets are, and then flex our leadership style 
so that we can connect with them most effectively in a way that's going to influence their behavior in a positive fashion. And so understanding leadership style means understanding the choices you can make as a leader to choose to be more directive or more collaborative or more supportive, um, as an example, in order to help someone achieve their greatest potential. And quite frankly, most of us realize that this particular leadership style we select in a given situation may be different with the same individual on a different day because they're in a different place. So our ability to, to build the antenna, the, to recognize how best to connect with others around us uh, enables us to uh, lead them more effectively, to influence their behavior in a positive way. And understanding the importance of what styles we have available to us, what choices with regards to leadership practices we have available to us is really valuable for helping us connect with them. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think part of that also that you mentioned there sort of subtextually is that you have to speak to their language, right? Because you have different yes. people at different levels when you're a leader. And often I think leaders forget that different people, it's not about, you know, smarts or anything. You can have somebody who's a technical person on your team, for example, who's on the front line, just doing sort of the technical work, who's extremely intelligent and excellent at what they do, but they speak a different language than you do. You're sort of more in an office environment and focused on high level strategy and thinking. And sometimes that requires a translation of sorts, right? Yep. It's very true. And <clears throat> the ability to make that translation is a form of emotional intelligence on our part. and. Uh, and, and it's it's really one of the things we need to work on. What we need to work on constantly is reading the signals around us of the needs and issues and concerns of the people we work with so that we can ultimately be increasingly effective at helping them achieve their greatest potential. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you think that in part it's also sort of that uh, propensity to have the student's mindset rather than the expert's mindset as a leader. You know, often you hear really good leaders say, I'm not the smartest guy in the room and or smartest woman in the room, not to right. not to be sexist, of course. And um, and often when you hear people say that, I think we as a society misinterpret that a little bit. And really what that means is that those individuals are just being receptive and open to the input and know how of the people that they rely on to execute. I agree with that. Um, candidly, some of the greatest leaders I've worked with and for are fundamentally humble people. And that surprises some folks when I assert that leadership, great leadership, includes humility because they'll often think of bombastic leaders who are vociferous and uh, command and control types uh, and, and be shocked to imagine that humility would be a quality of a great leader. But it is because fundamentally, one of the things you realize as you rise in, in organizational settings and gain additional leadership responsibilities is that the more you grow as a leader and rise in your level of responsibility, the harder it is to stay in touch with reality on the ground. The harder it is to understand the practical challenges your team members face, your customers face, your vendors face, or anybody else you're interacting with in your organization. And so it does take humility. It takes a willingness to listen with an open mind and listen with care to those around you and acknowledge that they probably know some things you don't know. And it's important to hear those things and understand them and take them into your uh, fact set as you, as you make judgments. Right. Now, the next step in this process, and I think the book does a good job of going through that in an incremental kind of timeline, do this first, then that, then this, then that. Mm -hmm. The next step is developing a leadership strategy. And the way that you describe doing that right from the outset is basically by starting to set realistic goals that'll guide the growth of the organization. Now, I love the concept, and it's something that I've sort of shifted my mindset to now as running my own practice and being involved mm -hmm. in more startup-y kind of things and talking to entrepreneurs. But at the same time, I often find that 
it's very abstract, right? When we talk about that, it's almost like uh, a navigator in in the 1500s saying, "I'm going out into the unknown." In a lot of ways, this is my general overall goal, but I don't really know what direction we're heading in. So, to you, what what are the best ways that you've seen other leaders or or that you have as best practices for a new leader to develop that? goal setting, right? To say, this is generally where we want to head as an organization. I think the, the first and foremost, the, the ingredients of, of doing that effectively begin with deepening your understanding of the customer set or the clientele set, depending upon the type of organization you're engaged, uh, deepening your understanding of the set of individuals and organizations that make up the market you serve. Because at the end of the day, if your organization is going to prosper, doesn't matter whether it's a commercial company, um, a service firm, a nonprofit, or any other kind of organization, if you're going to prosper, you need to uh, effectively deliver and address the needs, deliver services to and address the needs of some form of customer or client set. So first, let's start with an understanding of the needs of the organizations or individuals we want to serve. Once we've got a a, a reasonable understanding of that, then we need to ask ourselves, what are we most capable of delivering given those needs? And it may be some, a a specific set of unique uh, services given some technical skill or functional capability we have, or it may be something else, but ultimately Ask first, what is your market need? Second, what are you best equipped to deliver that's going to differentiate you from others who are in that same market? And then once you've got some clarity on that, you can begin to set specific goals for specific timeframes. And so, for example, you might begin by saying five years from now, we'd love to grow to X level of revenue and Y level of uh, customers or some other metrics that you choose. Establish what is what Jim Collins in the book Good to Great calls your big, hairy, audacious goal as your North Star, as the stretch goal uh, where your reach exceeds your grasp that you want to achieve long term. But make it tangible, make it measurable so that you can track your progress towards it. When you've got that in place, then you can establish interim goals, goals for, say, three years or one year that are specific and measurable, designed to move you towards the longer term goal. But it all begins with understanding what your market needs are, the market needs that you feel you can serve are, and what your specific skills are that will uh, help set you apart in providing services to that to that customer set. No, that's great. And uh, I'm taking notes like a madman here because uh, <laughs> this this is really meaningful. And I think it works well for a existing organizations as well as it does for a new startup that's literally just in the mind of the founders, right? Because it sets up a practical framework for looking at the horizon, like we said, saying, these are our big audacious goals, like you said, and then kind of working our way back, like you said, then the three-year goal from there, then the one-year goal from there, then maybe six yeah. months, and then what's our first step? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So it becomes very systematic, just like building leadership skills overall is systematic, or can be systematic. And ultimately, it's designed to enable you to break down what you want to achieve into bite-sized chunks. I'll tell you where I want to see you get to eventually. And this has to do with execution, which is a later chapter in the book. But I want to get you into a 90-day world so that every 90 days, you're setting a short list of specific measurable goals. And if you achieve those goals, you're marching towards your one-year plan, your one-year goals. And if you achieve those, you're marching towards your three-year picture. And if you achieve those, you're marching towards your long-term target. One of the things we've learned, and and, and I want to give credit here to Gino Wickman and the Entrepreneurial Operating System, which is a a set of management disciplines that we teach and are licensed to teach. We didn't create them, but we we teach them. And and the Entrepreneurial Operating System teaches us that about every 90 days, we kind of fray at the edges. And so let's reset our focus every 90 days with a short list of measurable goals to continuously move towards our longer term goals. So the execution disciplines every 90 days contribute directly to our ability to achieve long-term strategy. 
That's great. And that probably sets you up in a better position to see and forecast changes in the market, changes in sort of your own internal SWOT analysis, make pivots a little bit more readily and makes the organization probably look a lot more flexible because of that. Yes, that's exactly right. Awesome. So now we're on to improving communication skills, which obviously Mm -hmm. is very important. And we're talking more about emotional intelligence rather than the strategic goals of the organization itself. So yeah. what are your best practices? And I know emotional intelligence is frequently talked about, and there there are just stacks and stacks and stacks. You could almost fill libraries with books on emotional yes. intelligence. But what are your sort of top-level best practices if you had to pick a few? Uh, first and foremost, if we're going to communicate effectively and if we're going to be self-aware, which is a big component of emotional intelligence, uh, we need to really work on our listening skills. When people hear the word communication, it's pretty understandable. But the first thing they'll think about is delivering a message to someone else, speaking rather than listening. But the most effective communicators I've ever encountered are tremendously effective listeners. They understand the needs and concerns of those around them because they listen with an open mind. Uh, First of all, listening with humility, which we talked about a minute ago, acknowledging that when others have something to say, it may be worth hearing. And it may not always be something pleasant for us to hear or something we agree with, and yet it may very well be valid. So listening with an open mind is essential. And then listening actively. You, I'm sure, heard the term active listening. And that means really being engaged with the other person. It means understanding what they're saying not just pretending to hear them. Uh, It's the difference between listening to understand versus listening to reply. Um, And we want people to work on listening to understand because it enables them to make connections, which is then going to feed their ability to flex their leadership style, which is going to feed their ability to influence others effectively and positively. So first and foremost, my first recommendation to become a better communicator is work on your listening skills so you really hear people and understand them. And then from there, accept and acknowledge the barriers that stand in the way of good communication. In this day and age, with technology being uh, ever-present in our lives, there are a lot of barriers that can stand in the way. This kind of Zoom communication that you and I are having right now is actually an enabler. It's a wonderful enabler. And yet at the same time, because technology feeds us so much information so rapidly, it's just as easy to be distracted while we're taking advantage of communications technology to connect more often and more effectively. So accept the fact that there are distractions out there and take a deep breath and then re-engage in dialogue with others by listening carefully and then responding with compassion and um, in, a, in a manner that's going to be sensitive and, 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 and help you really connect with the other person. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And I'll, I'll tell a quick, very quick anecdote here. Um, one, first and foremost, I, I think that, yes, while Zoom really does facilitate Zoom and Google Meet and all of these resources, right. FaceTime, yep. Facebook, you know, chat, all these things that we have at our disposal enable us to connect on almost a million different portals and do facilitate communication in a lot of ways. And and thankfully, the pandemic, I mean, there's not a lot of silver linings here with the pandemic, of course, but but one of them is that we as a society had the infrastructure in place, right, to mm-hmm. kind of yeah. continue on societally almost uninterrupted in a lot of ways. But there is an energetic exchange to being live with a person that I think is now missing and unfortunately, especially for someone like me, I'm pretty extroverted, as you can imagine. I would imagine you're you're probably close to that as well. I miss that that energy that that sort of boosts me up. Introverts may not agree, of course. They they're kind of loving life, maybe more so right now. But I think that is missing, and that's something that maybe we as leaders also need to think about, right? That people have different energy levels throughout the day, and all of us are are different in that sense. In being sensitive not only to listening with an open mind and listening actively to what the other people are saying, two ears, one mouth, use them proportionately, right? Um, but we should also be sensitive to what's this person's energy level? What's the exchange yeah. right now on an energetic yeah. level and how that affects and, communication? It, I really agree with that. And um, 
I, I we've found a way to make um, electronic communication work pretty well for us. And uh, we were blessed to have the infrastructure in place a year ago so that we could move quickly to, to engage much more fully in the use of electronic platforms to continue our, our work. But I do agree with you. Being in the room with someone is a different experience and a more fulfilling one for me. It sure is a lot easier to read others' energy level when you're in the room with them. Yeah. What I find I have to do on uh, an electronic platform, whether it's Zoom or Google Meet or Teams or anything else, is sometimes just ask. Because you can see a, a face on the screen. Usually when we do our leadership training, there's a set of 12 to 16 tiles on the screen of individual faces that are there for the leadership class. And some of them I maybe feel like I'm reading well. But I'm looking at an image that's two inches by two inches on the screen. And so I, sometimes I just have to ask, where are you folks? Tell me where your energy level is now. Let's, let's add activity, either in the form of breaks and, and walking around and movement and other things, or extra exercises that are going to be engaging that will keep the energy level up. But it is, it's a blessing and a curse, most certainly, because we can do a lot more than we could do previously since we've got the electronic capability. Uh, but at the same time, I do agree. There's just a different quality. And I would, I would characterize it as a more satisfying quality of interaction when you're in the room with someone. Yeah. And if anyone out there just wants to think of a more tangible example, if you've ever been to a sporting event like a playoff game, you can feel the energy in the stadium as you walk in. It's almost electric filling the air. So it's that kind of same thing, but on a smaller level. Now, the, yeah, the anecdote, I w yeah, thank you. The, the anecdote, anecdote I was going to tell is that uh, recently, a couple of days ago, and I, of course, uh, I'll leave the innocent parties unnamed here. But uh, to your point about the distractions with the resources that we have at our disposal, I was on a Zoom call and it was a day just Zoom meeting after Zoom meeting after Zoom meeting. And as you can imagine, I have the podcast, then I have client meetings for the law firm, then I have, you know, things to kind of keep the networking pipeline going and working yep. on some production things and all these things. And to stay organized and to just kind of keep my own energy levels right, I have to really stay focused and be very active in terms of listening or else I'll just get lost on a call. And I was on this Zoom call and it was towards the end of the day and my energy level was admittedly a little on the low side. But um, the other individual was literally chatting with someone typing as we were having a Zoom call. And this was a first interaction. And I just thought to myself, you know, if if, you know, I don't want to waste their time and I'm, <laughs> I don't want to waste my own time. It was very valuable to me. So I just kind of cut the call short and said, OK, well, we'll stay connected and we'll see. But that can be really damaging to you professionally, I would imagine, yes. you know, regardless yeah. of your role or what you're looking to get out of the conversation, because I think people sometimes get on autopilot on Zoom calls and forget that, <laughs> that they're very visible right to the other person. I, I completely agree. And it's it's the equivalent uh, if you're at a Starbucks having a networking conversation with someone of them taking a series of phone calls during yes. your meeting with them. It's just fundamentally rude and, <laughs> and, and ultimately not what we're talking about. We're talking about effective communication. That's for sure. You kill the relationship before it even starts. It kind of kind of yeah. stinks, but hey, you know, you wear that on your sleeve. All right. So shifting back to this now, now this particular topic, inspiring engagement through motivation is one that I'm probably the one that most interests me, sort of that that study of what motivates different people at different levels to get together and really go into the breach and Sometimes you watch these documentaries like Netflix versus the world and you hear about these things where they for example in that documentary Netflix early on was up against this gargantuan David Goliath scenario of Blockbuster really just being completely the the only show in town pretty much and Netflix came along and Blockbuster kind of just ignored them and this group of scrappy innovators became Netflix. So mm -hmm. it, to you, again, kind of looking at best practices, because there's a lot of stuff out there about inspiring motivation, but what are your best practices for practically determining 
what inspires people. Because I think people look at this from a strategic level, but then there's the practical, you know, maybe you should just ask the question, what would inspire you to do X, Y, or Z? And that's a great question to, to use. Um, first best practice, it goes right back to the discussion we had about flexing your leadership style, meeting people where they are. If you want to create an environment for motivation as a leader, uh, you need to understand the needs of the team members that you work with, whether they report to you directly or they're just working colleagues who don't report to you but are part of your working ecosystem. Understand the, their needs. And, and, and what we teach in as we teach leaders to build an environment for motivation is the wonderful construct of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is a model that goes all the way back to the mid 20th century. He was a wonderful, wonderful uh, thought leader and, and psychologist. And Maslow realized that there are at least five levels of needs that we address as people every uh, uh, day that we go about our lives. Basic needs and safety needs are at the bottom of that pyramid. Basic needs, food and shelter. Safety needs, I want to be sure that I am in an environment where I can be safe and protected. But then at the higher level of that pyramid are needs for belongingness, ego, and self-actualization. And what we mean by those is, is as follows. If we're if we feel our safety needs and our basic needs are met, the next thing we want to know is, is there an organization or group or team that we belong to? We have, we have a need to belong. Human beings have that as a, as a fundamental need. And so we want to be sure our belonging needs are met. If they are, then the next thing that's going to motivate us is addressing our ego needs. Now, when we hear the word ego, Typically, we think of that initially as a pejorative term. In other words, someone who's egocentric or self-centered. That's not what we mean here. What we mean is addressing the needs of an individual who already feels like he or she belongs to a group to show off their specific skills, their unique capabilities, to, be, to have their gifts affirmed. That's going to motivate us if we've already concluded that we belong. And if our ego needs are met, we've had a chance to show off our specific skills, our unique gifts, our technical knowledge or functional skills in some way. Then the next thing that's going to motivate us is the highest level of motivation, which is self-actualization, which is stretching beyond what we would typically do in a day-to-day, -day, in the boundaries within a day-to-day -day job, being challenged to do things we never imagined we could do. What Maslow teaches us and what we as leaders, what we want leaders to uh, use as a tool is that as a, as a particular level of needs are met, the next thing that motivates us is the next level up. So if I've got a sense of belonging and that need is met, then I want to be affirmed for my specific skills, and that'll motivate me. And if those, are, if those, those needs are met, then I want to be uh, challenged to stretch beyond. And ultimately, that's how we want leaders to think about creating an environment for motivation. There's one more point I'm going to make, Tony, and that is, a point that I feel passionately about. And that is, it is our job as leaders to create an environment for motivation. But it is not our job in doing that to make the people that work for us happy. That's a burden that's too great for us to bear because we don't have control over that. But what we can do and what we should do is create an environment where our team members can be motivated and different team members are going to have different motivational needs. So we need to be sensitive to what each team member needs. And if we're focused on creating that environment, then it's up to the team members to grab the brass ring and achieve the, the kind of satisfaction at work that they seek. Yeah, that's interesting. And that also leads me to think about uh, a different philosophy that, that ties in with Maslow, which is spiral dynamics, which is a, a philosophy that looks more at um, socioeconomic changes culturally and sort of throughout history human psychological evolution as a part of that and fits in with that. And one of the interesting things is that you mentioned in Maslow, that's the same thing, is that each level transcends and includes the prior level. Mm -hmm. And one of the yep. things that I think that sometimes we forget is people can at different times, again, kind of looking at energy and things that are going on in their lives and, and you know, more dynamically looking at things rather than statically, 
People sometimes regress depending on what's going on in their lives. For example, if they lose a loved one, all of a sudden their basic and safety needs might be of utter concern because they're more concerned about their family and, and what's going on. And their work may not be the highest priority at that point, obviously. And self-actualization becomes lower and lower on the list if, if you're at that stage. And COVID-19, actually, the pandemic, I think, brought that out of a lot of people. And we see that in shifts, right? People hitting peaks and valleys and plateauing emotionally, psychologically. And a lot of people I've noticed in my own circles, sometimes when they're going through struggles, whether they're, you know, concerns about a loved one who who's struggling with the pandemic or concerns about job security or whatever it may be, you see them regress mentally in other areas of their life, right? They can't go out and enjoy a round of golf or enjoy something that otherwise would fulfill them because all of a sudden their basic and safety needs are of concern, right? I really agree with that. In fact, it's an interesting point you're making. Maslow does teach us that if we're concerned about a particular level of need, let's just say, I'm not so sure I belong in this group anymore, then we do then begin to focus on the next level down, which would be safety needs. Am I safe in this job? Is the job going to be retained? Is the company going to survive? And what I've heard from a lot of managers over the last year is that they have had to focus more of their attention on reassuring their team members that their job is safe, presuming that it is. Obviously, we, we're not asking leaders to deceive. Right. But ultimately, focus more energy on the lower level needs, precisely because people have been concerned, given the crisis nature of the pandemic, about whether their companies were going to survive, whether their specific job would be retained, et cetera. So I think it's had an effect that's caused us as leaders to, to, to have to spend a lot more energy on the safety needs and, and maybe in some cases, even the basic needs of our team members when normally we'd be focused on belong, addressing their belonging needs or their needs to stand out with their own individual skills, which is their ego needs. Right. And there's an interesting dichotomy or meta in there as well, where the leader themselves has to kind of keep an eye on self-awareness, right? Where their needs are, because I've also seen other leaders recently, you know, in the last year or so with the pandemic on Zoom calls and stuff. And you see people who's they're now wearing their stress on their sleeves <laughs> because they've shifted their focus so much to just keeping their team in line that they've forgotten to check in with themselves and notice that, you know, maybe their safety needs are now kind of shifting or, or their ego needs or belonging needs are shifting. And that can have an effect on the overall success of the organization, right? I really agree with that. And the advice that I give leaders in that regard is first, definitely process your own feelings and therefore your own needs. But don't use your team members, especially your direct reports, as the audience with whom you're going to process that stuff. Take it off stage. Focus on their needs in working with them. But absolutely have in place a, a relationship or set of relationships with coworkers or people outside the work setting uh, that will help you process the concerns you have. Because you need to do that. Otherwise, it's going to show up as jagged edged, weird, unanticipated behavioral uh, uh, steps that you'll take in the midst of a meeting that become damaging and, and, and really counterproductive. So I think it's really important to address your own needs, but do it off stage not using your team as your sounding board. Uh, that's great advice. One of the things that we've implemented, and I stole this from another startup founder, myself and a few colleagues are working on this startup. We've been working on it since August, week in, week out, having all hands meeting strategic things. We're about to enter a pitch competition. There's all this stuff going on. And one of the things that, that I've done um, my role is chief vision officer. We have sort of a three-headed CEO, co-CEO model. We, we mm -hmm. decided not to go the traditional C-suite acronyms. We have a chief vision officer, uh, a chief innovation officer, and a chief people officer. And um, I'm sorry, a chief vision officer, a chief creative officer, and a chief people officer. Gotcha. And one mm -hmm. of the things that we've been doing a lot is focusing on gratitude in our meetings. First of all, we're mm -hmm. all just meeting virtually, so it's tough to even interact as we were talking about, but focusing on gratitude and then focusing also on our why, on our inspiration and our reasoning for doing what we're doing week in and week out. 
which helps us kind of stay the course mentally because it brings back a fresh perspective every time we have that meeting. So that's kind of something that's helped us. I think that's a wonderful approach. Um, All too often, we don't take the time to remind ourselves why we're doing what we're doing and what it is that excites us about that. And we need to be refreshed on it. We need to be re-energized about that. So bravo for you guys doing that. I think that's really smart. Thank you. Yeah. So, okay. Now, what we've gotten to the point where we're looking at behavior and feedback, and, and mm-hmm. this fits in perfectly. It was a great segue accidentally from Maslow and all of these uh, sort of philosophical concepts into this. Now, when you're guiding behavior through feedback, this can be a delicate thing. And this, again, mm-hmm. is one where leaders need to be really sensitive to the language that they're using with different people at different levels. The way you treat and talk to an engineer or a technical person or an automotive technician, if you're in the automotive space. I was actually an automotive technician before undergrad. I, I worked as a mechanic for for a while, for pro- close to three years. And um, that's a completely different environment. It's We're all speaking English, but it's a completely different version of English. Yeah. Often very yeah. colorful as well. Uh, but <laughs> it, it can be very different. And if you're talking to the foreman, for example, or if you're talking to a tech that's on the front line working on customer cars, Feedback levels are completely different, right? Depending on what you say in your wording could spark two different conversations pretty quickly. So sure. what's what's your advice there for how we should best shape our language and what types of feedback work really well for shaping behavior? My business partner, Tim Thomas, calls feedback the breakfast of champions. And the reason he does is because it is an, it's an essential leadership responsibility that we have. And it's also an essential need we have as individuals working with others. So in order to give effective feedback, and we and we want to provide feedback to help people understand what they're doing beautifully so they can reinforce that and keep doing it and understand where they need to make changes, redirect their energy so that they can uh, be more successful in the work they're doing. Ultimately, two or three things come to mind right off the bat. Number one, Make sure your feedback is uh, non-judgmental. This is a tough thing to do, but it's really important. We call it, make make the feedback descriptive rather than judgmental. Describe what you've observed rather than discuss what you've observed with all kinds of loaded judgmental words. And the reason we want to be descriptive rather than judgmental is because Ultimately, in providing feedback, we're seeking a desired outcome. Keep doing something you're doing beautifully or change something that isn't working. And if we keep it on the descriptive side, describe what we've seen, but don't make judgments about it, we're much more likely to have the person receiving the feedback stay engaged in the conversation. If we load up our feedback with judgmental words, I think you're lazy, I don't think you're very bright, or some other judgment, it's pretty normal for people to turn off and stop listening. So first and foremost, keep your feedback descriptive. Describe what you've seen, but don't make judgments about it. Then make sure it's specific. Don't provide feedback that is so general that somebody can't get their hands on what it is they need to change. Give them specific examples of what they've done well so they know what they need to keep doing or what needs to change so they understand in specific terms what behaviors aren't working and need to be redirected into some other approach. So keep it specific and also keep it timely. Uh, providing feedback in a short w- within a short time window after you observe something is often more effective than providing feedback two or three months after some conversation occurred in a meeting that you thought went well or thought should have been handled differently. Because so much time has passed, it's essentially irrelevant. So all of this boils down to providing feedback where your mindset is, I want to help you succeed rather than I want to scold you. I want to help you succeed. And so I'm going to provide you feedback on some things you're doing beautifully that I, that I hope you'll continue to do because it's really having a positive effect on the business, on the individuals we work with. Or I want to help you succeed and ask you to change some things because they're not working. And here are the specific things I've observed. But do it all with a with an attitude of, a desire to help the individual prosper. When you can give feedback in that way, it's a gift. 
And I was blessed. I, I Early in my career, I got feedback that redirected me with regards to some of my behaviors as a young rising manager, but an inexperienced manager from others who were senior to me and much more experienced. And I really benefited from that. It, it was not feedback that I would have chosen to hear because I needed to change some behaviors that weren't working. And I, But I was blind to it. And these individuals helped open my eyes and see what I, where I could make reasonably subtle changes in my behavior that enabled me to have far better working relationships with others and therefore prosper in my career. So feedback really is a gift and doing it well by making it specific and authentic and really truly focused on the your desire to help the other individual prosper can make it very effective. Now, looking back at that at that example that you were just talking about, from your perspective, how did you initially receive the feedback and how was it delivered such that it did make you realize that? Because often I think we as human beings, again, you know, we're very in our own heads, obviously, right? And and we're very cognitive. We think a lot overthink yeah. a lot often. Um, and so it's tough for someone to accept feedback that's critical. And not everyone has thick skin. And some people are a little bit more emotionally reactive. Others are a little bit more logical. Neither one is good or bad. It's just different. So to you, what made that impactful in the sense that it made you eventually take a step back and say, I really do need to change these behaviors if I want to be better and if I want to grow. Um, the feedback was delivered by an individual who was not my direct boss. Uh, it was a man who was a peer of my direct boss with whom I worked pretty regularly. So he had lots of exposure to me and had good observations of what he'd seen and the way I was behaving in meetings and interacting with others and the impact my behavior had on others. Um, and he just took the time to take me to lunch and and say, you know, I love the work you're doing on these projects. I think it's really valuable. But I also want to offer a couple of observations I hope you'll take into account, just a couple of thoughts. So it was very gently done. Um, and he described what he saw. He described the impact of my behavior on others and why he felt that was not going to be productive for me and for the team we were working with long term. And then we chatted together about what I might do differently. So he guided me in that sense to conclude uh, the specific steps I should take that would change my approach and therefore my impact on others. He, it was really it was really a thoughtful gift. He didn't have to do it. I didn't report to him. He didn't have the, the management responsibility for my success or failure. But we had developed enough of a working relationship that he just cared about. And so therefore, it goes back to the other point I was making. It was obvious to me right from the start that even though he was delivering a message that was sort of a tough love message, um, it came from his heart, his desire to help me succeed rather than just a desire on his part to vent or get something off his chest. That's and, wonderful. And, and that made all the difference. I knew he cared about my success and I listened really carefully to what he said and then worked at making the changes. And we checked in from time to time, just casually. And I'd ask, hey, you were in the meeting today. Did it go a little better? And he said, yeah, I like the way you responded to their questions. And, and I like the way you asked more open questions to affirm their knowledge and, 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 and expertise. So it was, uh, it was a, a watershed moment for me in my career. And what I hope leaders generally will take away from this is that giving feedback really is an incredibly important leadership tool. And we need to use it. We need to use it well. We need to use it with care. Uh, but but we need to use it because people need feedback because we can't always see the effect we're having on others. And we need uh, those who are who've got a little distance that can see some things we don't see to help us open our eyes and know what to keep doing well and what to change. Yeah, that's wonderful. And what a great story. And thank you for sharing that. But I think one of the things that I caught there was that he gave without any expectation of return, which you pointed out. And yeah. often you you hear a lot of people talking about it, Gary V, Gary Vaynerchuk, or or other you know prominent people talking about when you give with no expectation of return, one, it's very fulfilling to you. And that's kind of where mentor-mentee relationships often yes. come from as well, yeah. right? And so yeah. 
that I think as a, a subtextual thing for leaders to think about as well, that you need to give that feedback. And honestly, you literally made me realize this in this moment, that if you give feedback to a colleague or to someone who works with you in any capacity, above, below, whatever, one, being very sensitive to whether or not they're going to be receptive to that feedback, but also giving that feedback in the interest of the betterment of that individual with absolutely no skin in the game for yourself, no expectation of some return for you. Because when I think about the feedback that I've received over time, whether it be from a mentor, and I have uh, very thankfully have this wonderful mentor that that has changed my life over the course of the nine years that we've been working together, or in actual em employment roles when I've worked for other mm -hmm. firms or for other organizations before that, the feedback that's received with a hint, even just a hint of I'm your leader and therefore your performance reflects on me and that's why I'm giving you this feedback, meaning there's some self-interest and you know arguments about self-interest can, can go back and forth, of course, but when it's given in that context, it's much harder to receive and much harsher on the receiver's palate, right? About that feedback being more critical rather than when you're giving feedback in your example with no expectation of return. Hey, this is what my perspective is and just trying to help you out. Completely different, right? It is. And guess what? People are smart. They know they can discern easily whether uh, feedback or any other guidance that they get from people they work with is driven by a self-centered motive on the part of the individual providing that feedback or guidance or an other-centered motive. And it's the other-centered motive that really has the impact. Yeah. Um, if, if my mindset as a leader is to help you prosper and succeed, then the people that work with me or for me are going to get that. And they're going to be fired up. They're going to be, that's a, a, a wonderful way to create an environment for motivation. Um, if on the other hand, they, they have enough exposure to me over time that they conclude that my agenda is all about me, then they may well follow orders, but they're not going to be nearly as engaged. And, and, and ultimately, the organization won't achieve as much as it could otherwise. Right, exactly. So now we're kind of segueing into the next step, which is conflict resolution and how to argue well, so to speak. Very sensitive area, right? When you yeah. have someone who has not taken that feedback well or or who mm -hmm. just hasn't, you know, is is in a, a bad situation. Now we're looking at a situation that's already crossed that precipice. What are what's your advice for someone who's struggling with a scenario within their organization to get conflict resolution that needs conflict resolution support? And I would imagine that at this stage, we're looking at a situation where Maybe some of these other th things have been tried and haven't mm -hmm. succeeded, unfortunately, right? You're not getting the right motivation and engagement out of the individual that we're looking at. They're not taking feedback well, most likely, if they're in a conflict type of situation. Not necessarily, but maybe. So what what are your best practices for conflict resolution? And, and uh, first, let me define the playing field. The conflict resolution we address in Leading on Purpose uh, is addressing unhealthy conflict. So what we mean by that is addressing conflict that ultimately becomes a roadblock in the workplace for getting productive work done. There is such a thing as healthy conflict, and that's actually a good thing to have in, in your working environment. What we mean by that is arm wrestling over tough issues to make better decisions for the business, but not making it personal. Where it becomes unhealthy conflict is when it becomes personal. When we begin to have such such uh, interaction and, and and tension with others, and make the conflict personal, it gets in the way of us doing productive work. So the very first thing that that, that I recommend is take a deep breath and slow down. The challenge most of us face in a conflict in an unhealthy conflict situation is that we're engaged in a tense interaction with somebody um, because we're angry. We're we're stressed. There's a tension of one kind or another. And often what happens is we speed up our responses. Um, we, we eliminate our ability to think through the most productive way to address the conflict. So the 
first point of advice I have is slow down. The second step from my perspective then is in slowing down, take a step back and ask yourself, what is it about this conflict situation that's got me worked up? What is it about it that's causing tension within me? Why am I so frustrated about this particular matter? That requires time to do a little self-analysis, but ultimately it's very worthwhile because if we can begin to get a little insight, either through our own personal reflection or through dialogue with a third party who's not involved in the conflict, then we can gain some insights into what ultimately might help us change our approach and therefore open the door for the other party to change his or her approach. So uh, an awful lot of managing conflict is to understand that we need to slow the speed with which we want to address it down. That doesn't mean put off addressing. It means in addressing it, take a step back, understand what our, what our sources of tension are, and then give the other person permission to do the same. And then from there, you often can open in a conversation that's more productive, where together you can sort out how you're going to resolve the conflict and address it going forward. Great advice. Now, we're a little short on time, and I want to be respectful of your, your hard stop. So I think we can skip execution because we've gotten a lot out of this discussion about mm -hmm. how to execute on different levels. But I do want to just cover change management as a whole, because sure. this is a big sure. part of it. And so we'll kind of wrap on that. When one of the quotes in there is that in your book is that leading people through change effectively is the most difficult part of leadership. So what are the biggest challenges in navigating change effectively? And, you know, in those challenges, how can we turn those into opportunities for success? Virtually all of us resist change in some fashion. I have plenty of people who will say to me, I love change. And, and, and there are types of changes all of us like that we perceive as positive for our lives, our relationships, um, our interests. But in a workplace setting, quite often, probably more often than not, change is perceived as challenging, frightening, and something to resist. What we've learned is that the reason we resist change isn't because we may see a better future outcome if we make a change. We may know that Going through the change is going to lead, to a, lead us to a better place. What we resist is the chaos, the mess in the journey. Um, and so our job as leaders is to do our very best to reduce the chaos for our team members as we navigate from the current state to a future state. Um, the simple truth is we can't, probably can't eliminate the chaos, but we've got a shot at reducing it by adopting some leadership behaviors. Number one, defining with clarity why we're moving from the current state to the future state. And then also with clarity, what the future state is intended to achieve, what the benefits are of making the change. Then lead the team through, and often this, is, this takes place in one-on-one -on -one interactions with individual team members, but it certainly can take place in team discussions as well. Help team members understand the steps you're going to need to go through in order to move from the current state to the future state and how you're going to support them every step of the way. And be patient with the fact that they will have normal reactions to change that we all have. Number one, I'm shocked that we have to do it. I'm not sure I want to do it. Number two, I may be a little angry that the change is taking place. Number three, maybe I'm going to begin to get a little optimistic the change can work. And number four, I may finally embrace the change. If we know team members are going to go through those stages, and they are, then as leaders, Let's resolve right from the start to communicate fully, listen with care, provide a tremendous amount of support, celebrate wins, and ultimately then give them the support they need when they get to the changed new state. So for my money, the most successful leaders in leading individuals and teams through change approach it just as systematically as we approach all of the other leadership development exercises or tasks we've been talking about. And that is be prepared, communicate fully, provide support, and do everything you can to help them see the benefits of the future state. But be patient with the normal human reactions they have to resisting the chaos that goes with change. That's my, my advice in a nutshell. 
Wonderful and fascinating stuff. I thought this was an excellent discussion. I could talk about this for hours, but I know you have to go. So Rip, thank you so much for your time. I will drop a link to your book in the show notes on both the YouTube video and anyone who's listening to this on whatever app they're listening to. It'll be down in the show notes. Go check out Rip's book. You can find it on Amazon and anywhere books are sold. Rip, if people want to reach out to you specifically or they're looking for more information or help with their own leadership challenges, what's the best way to reach out to you? Uh, best way is is uh, just a, an email. Uh, rip.tilden at gmail.com is one of my email addresses. And it's probably the simplest one to remember. Um, they can also go to the Macarios Consulting website, macariosconsulting.com. And there's communications pathway there too. But probably the simplest way is the email. Cool. Rip, thank you very much. Have a great day. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Tony. I really enjoyed it. Have a great day yourself.